Oh, gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is without error, that it is completely truthful, that it is your word breathed out by you. And Father, we can trust your word. I pray, Father, that you would give us the faith now to your word, to listen closely with ears and hearts. God, give us hearts to receive these truths, and may we act on behalf of these realities by the power of your Spirit in faith, showing that we truly believe you are more valuable than anything else, anyone else. You are a maker. You are a sustainer, our Savior. And Father, we want all of us, all of our being to be lived out for you. Bring us more and more into that reality through this word that's preached. May we be transformed into the image of Christ more increasingly. As Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. By your spirit so that we may glorify you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So since Dan is out of town, and he's out of town for four weeks, I've been given the privilege of preaching the Word of God to you for the next four weeks. And so we are going to a place that uh, I didn't really conclude that this would be the place that we would go until recently. I, 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 and leading up to this, and months, the months previous, thought maybe I'll go through Jude, maybe I'll go through Philemon, a smaller book of the Bible, maybe Second John or Third John. You know those kinds of things go through your head, and you wonder what do the people uh, need to hear? What do I need to hear? What what section of scripture would I love to dive into and sink my teeth into? And so I, the Lord led me to Philippians chapter three, and uh, and loved that chapter, but have not studied it in depth until recently, and so. I want to spend the next four weeks going through that chapter with you from start to finish. One chapter, four messages in Philippians chapter 3. So turn with me to that section of Scripture. If you haven't already, we're going to introduce this chapter and then start working our way through it, okay? I'm thinking about the topic and the issues that Paul is dealing with here made me think of the realization that each of us begin to develop in life, right? It's kind of a, a habit we start when we're very young, right? This habit, according to our sinful nature, is that we start developing two lists. Two lists. The gain list and the loss list. Even from the small ripe young age of children, we start gaining uh, an understanding that to do certain things is gain for the people in our lives, and to do other things is loss for the people in our lives, right? We know that the people in our world 
the people in our lives and in the world around us, they think that certain things are gained and they think that certain things are lost. And we start to develop these lists, right? We have a gain list and a loss list. We want to walk in step with the gain list so that we can get into people's good favor, so that we can get on people's good side. We want to stay away from the things in the lost list because we know that those things would not be good for us if we want to have people's favor, if we want to have people's um, kindness, their, um, their, their gifts and their resources, we stay away from the lost list. So as children, we learn very quickly that it's loss to color on the walls with permanent marker. It's a loss, we think to ourselves. Okay, I get that now. The reaction that I received, that's loss. But gain to color on a Mother's Day card, right? It's cute. It's received well with an awe. So it's a, that's gain. That's gain. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's loss to run away from my father whenever he's trying to put on my church clothes. But gain if I'm running away from my dad when we're practicing football, right? Gain and loss. And, and we start adding to these lists more and more as we get older. And as we get older and we reach adulthood, the lists become longer and more complex, but we're still adding to them. What's gain to the people in my life? What's loss to the people in my life? I want to walk according to the gain list. I want to stay away from the loss list so I can get from people what I want. And so as adults, we, we learn it's a loss to run through a stop sign. It's a gain to run a mile after work right? It's, it is loss to forget your anniversary, but gain to forget the hairdo crisis your wife had when you first got married. Gain and loss. The older we get, we actually see that we need different lists for different people, right? Um, these people, uh, th- that's gain to them, these people in my life, well, that's not gain to them. It's more like loss for them. So we start keeping lists for different people in our lives because what is gain to some people is not gain to others. It's loss. What's wrong with this? Well, when we engage in these habits, a lot of times it's, it's manipulative, right? It's self-centered people-pleasing to get out of people what we want from them, right? So that's, that's a problem. It's also a problem because this pattern gets us used to performing, right? It gets us used to performing. Performing in the sense that we are living our lives trying to function according to the lists we have for the people in our lives whose acceptance we value the most. And living this way, we learn that staying away from the things in the lost list and walking in step with the items in the gain list is what gets us what we want from people. So then the same pattern very easily slips into our relationship with God. We ask in our minds, what kind of performance is in God's gain list? What do I have to do to get on God's good side? What do I have to do to get into God's good favor? How do I need to perform? And what's in his loss list? What things do I not need to do so I can stay away from his anger, stay away from his wrath? 
So thinking this way is a problem because we, it gets into our thinking when we relate to God. And God, as we'll see in his gospel, will have none of that. He will have none of that thinking. And so we've got to dismiss that from our hearts and minds and our relationship to the Lord. And I think that's what we're going to find here in Philippians chapter 3. So open up your Bibles. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 3. Follow along with me as I read. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May the Lord do as he pleases with his word. Now, this is going to be a part one message. Um, we're going to be looking at verses one through 11. Uh, this is part one. We'll, we'll finish this section of scripture next week, and then we'll have two more uh, at the end of the month to finish out chapter three. But let's get into the context of where we are in the book of Philippians. In chapter two, Paul has just spent those verses urging the believers in the church of Philippi toward humility, okay? He's urging them toward humility. If they're going to make his joy complete, look with me at verse two, right? If they're going to make his joy complete, then they're going to need to have the same mind and the same love being in full accord and of one mind. They're going to need to be united, They're going to complete his joy. They need to be united. And if they're going to be united, as he gets into in verses 3 and 4, they're going to need to pursue humility. In order to be united, they're going to have to be humble. And so in verse 3, he says, count others more significant than yourselves. Well, if they're going to do that, if they're going to count others as more significant than themselves, then they need to follow the example of Jesus, right? Verse 5, have this attitude and yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then we see his humble example in verses six through eight. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. So if you're going to be united, you've got to be humble. If you're going to be humble, follow the example of Jesus. And then at the end of the chapter, he gives two more examples of humility. Timothy and Epaphroditus, both examples of humility for the Philippian believers. And it's at that time that he transitions to the final remarks that he's going to give in this epistle. And says, finally, my brothers, in verse 1 of chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. Now, this is important considering the context of this section we're, we're getting into. Because Paul is going to give them great reason to rejoice in the Lord. Not to rejoice in themselves, right? Not to rejoice in self, but to rejoice in the Lord. He's going to tell them why. Give them good reason to rejoice in him. Now, here's the question we're going to be looking at this morning. Just keep this question in the forefront of your mind. Where does a genuine believer place his confidence? Where does a genuine believer place his or her confidence before God. We'll see. And um, underneath this question, and in answering this question, we're going to see along the way that Paul gives us a personal testimony that really strengthens his argument. So, looking with me, starting in verse 2, we're going to see something here. The mark of a genuine believer, that is where they place their confidence And this text is given in contrast to enemies of the gospel. The mark of a genuine believer, that is where he places his confidence, is put against the enemies of God in contrast to false teachers, okay? False teachers who are teaching that ceremonial Judaistic ritualism is needed in order for a person to be accepted by God, right? Essentially, we're taught false teachers who believed and taught that faith in Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation, but it must be supplemented. It must be added to with elements of Judaism, specifically circumcision, right? So they believed and taught that You must trust in Jesus with Jesus plus religious work, religious activity equals salvation, right? They're adding to Jesus, and that is error. That's not the gospel at all. And so Paul addresses them in verse 2. He's he's a bit angry, and you'll see by the language he uses that he's, he's angry about these false teachers, See, these false teachers and teaching Jesus plus something else equals salvation are, are doing what the Judaizers did in the book of Galatians. And, and Paul gets after them. And he gets after the Galatians for, for leaving. On the, they're, they're straying from the gospel. And he gets after them in Galatians. And especially in chapter 5, we see this. If you accept circumcision, this is verse 2 of chapter 5 in Galatians, if you accept circumcision, right? Circumcision as needed for salvation, right? Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. If you believe you need circumcision in order to be accepted by God, then here's what happens. Or here's the result. Christ will be of no advantage to you. And then we see in verse four, he says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. 
think you need to do in order to be justified before God, if you need to do, then you are sick from Christ. He is of no advantage to you. And that's what these false teachers were teaching. So knowing this, it's not hard to understand why Paul uses some sharp language here in verse 2. Look with me. He says, look out for the dogs. He calls these false teachers dogs. And I don't know if I need to say this or not, but that's not a compliment. Um, it's not a compliment. We like dogs in our culture, all right? Uh, women sometimes have their dogs in their purse when they go shopping. And there are aisles that are dedicated to pet clothing at Target. And we, we think, dog, man's best friend, right? It, the dog is a part of the family. We love dogs. And that's not the case here. In the first century, for Jews, dogs were a despised animal. They were to be avoided. You wanted to steer clear of dogs. They were scavengers, and they were sometimes known for attacking people. You wanted to get away from dogs. They were not the cuddly pet that we see them as today. In fact, dogs were so hated by the Jews that they would sometimes call Gentiles dogs. This is a harsh word given because he wants them to steer clear. He wants them to steer clear of these false teachers. And he calls them, again, uh, another name, evildoers. Evildoers. And this is appropriate when you consider that they were leading people away from Christ, away from hope, away from truth. Of course they're doing evil when they do that, when they teach those false doctrines. And, and see, here's the thing. Religious works, religious duties, they don't seem like evil on their face, do they? Right? It looks like people are, are being devout when doing uh, religious works, performing religious deeds. But if they're teaching people to trust in those things, to be accepted by God, that's evil. You're leading them away from the one gospel that there is. There is no other gospel, right? Galatians chapter 1. Paul says, I'm surprised that you're, so e- that you've, you're moving away from the gospel. And he says, not that there is another gospel, right? Not that there is another gospel. There's one. There's one gospel. And, and if you are teaching people that they need something besides Jesus in order to be made right with God, then you are leading them away from the only hope that there is. And that is evil. And so it looks good. It looks devout. It looks uh, very faithful on, on its face when people are, are doing their religious deeds. But if they're trusting in them, make them right before God, and they're teaching others to do the same, that indeed is evil doing. That's why William Hendrickson in his commentary on Philippians calls these false teachers Satan's demolition crew. Finally, he calls them those who mutilate the flesh. Those who mutilate the flesh. Now, this is a graphic designation. Here's what he means. Paul is using harsh language in reference to the emphasis that these false teachers put on the outward mark of circumcision and the value they placed on it for having favor with God, okay? They put emphasis on the outward sign of circumcision. They think it is necessary for salvation or to to, to be right with God, right? And so he's using this harsh language to point that out. Now, 
In his commentary on Romans, John Murray says this about outward circumcision. There's no spiritual significance except as a sign and seal of that which it represents. And what he means is it represents uh, a true heart circumcision, a renewing done by the Holy Spirit and the heart to set apart a believer unto God for service, okay? But this outward mark of circumcision has no spiritual value. It, it's not something you can bring to God and say, here, I'm recommending myself to you. Look what I have done. See, see my activity, my deeds, what I have done, they are something that I offer to you to have favor with you. It, it cannot be used. God will have none of that. And so he says, mutilate the flesh because it seems that he is saying that to use circumcision as something that is required for salvation is doing serious spiritual damage to those that these teachers are influencing. So that's why he uses such strong language to mutilate the flesh. Now, in contrast to these false teachers, he calls true believers the circumcision in verse 3, right? The circumcision, or as the NAS says, the true circumcision, which should be understood to mean that Christians have received the circumcision of the heart, right? That we just got through mentioning, the circumcision of the heart. Now, I want you to listen to Paul's words in Romans 2, 28 and 29. It's going to help us understand something about heart circumcision, okay? It says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from So true circumcision is of the heart. It's a uh, purifying, a a renewal done by the Holy Spirit to set a believer aside, or to set a believer apart for service unto God. Okay? And so, in this sense, if you are a believer, then you have received the circumcision of the heart, and you are a true Jew in that sense, right? A true child of God because you've been changed by the Spirit for God's service. Now, let me stop here and and ask a question of application. Harsh language. These false teachers, they're dogs, evildoers, they mutilate the flesh. They're doing serious spiritual harm to the people that they're teaching, okay? Do you love God and the gospel enough to get angry? when people are being led astray to false teaching and error? Do you love God and the gospel enough to be angry whenever people are being led astray to a false hope? Error that will lead them away from the one true gospel of deliverance. We need to be people who love God that that much get angry when we see false teachers leading people away from Jesus. Oh. If, we, if, we're, if we don't get angry, if we're indifferent to that, let us pray, God, please. I know that, that you are the, the true God, the one and only God, and your gospel is the one and only gospel, and it is the gospel of life. It gives eternal life. And through it, we may, through it, we know you. We are your sons and daughters. We are your friends, not your enemies. Please help me to realize this. And God, make me to love you and your gospel much that I am angry when people are led astray from it. 
doesn't mean we lose control. I mean, Paul's not losing control here, but he is leading him to warn, isn't it? Because he loves God and the gospel that much. Now, let's go back to our question. What or where does a genuine believer place his confidence before God? Where does a genuine believer place his confidence before God? Here in verse 3, we're going to see two positive answers to this question and then one negative answer, which is going to be the flip side, okay? Genuine believers worship, he says, right, the true circumcision, true genuine believers, they worship by the Spirit of God. They worship by the Spirit of God. Uh, What is needed for true believers to worship? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. God is needed for us to worship. We depend on Him so that we can worship. And in this context and this word worship, it, it shouldn't be just understood to mean worship when we gather here on Sundays. Right? We're gathering corporately, we're singing worship songs, we are engaging in worship when we pass the offering plate and we give our tithes and offerings, we're worshiping through prayer. It's not just this, it's not just worship when he says worship. It should be considered or should be seen as service to God. Service to God that evidences itself in the way that we live, uh, when we live our lives in devotion to him. So See it as service to God with our lives, okay? We do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we put our confidence in the Spirit so that we can worship Him in this way, right? So we're answering the question, where do do we place our confidence? Here we see specifically in this aspect of this verse, the Holy Spirit. And then we see, we see that true believers, genuine believers, glory in Christ, Glory in Christ Jesus. So, how do we understand glory? How should we understand that? As boasting. When we glory in Christ Jesus, we're, we are boasting in Christ Jesus. Right? Uh, Paul uses this word, the, the Greek word for glory in our text here in chapter 3 of Philippians. He uses that same Greek word in Galatians 6.14, when he says, But far be it from me to boast, same word, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boast. We, true believers, boast in Christ. Now, why would we boast in Christ if we didn't have our confidence placed in him? We boast in Christ because we have placed our confidence in him alone, right? So here's the question again. Why would we boast or brag? Brag on Christ for the same reason a drowning man would boast in the lifeguard that saved him? Why would we boast in Christ? Why would we brag on Christ for the same reason a dying man would boast in the person who died so he could have a heart transplant? Though for that, for that same reason, because there would be no life without that person's sacrifice. And for us, in terms of spiritual life, there would be no spiritual life. There would be no soul that has been renewed. There, there would be no hope, no spiritual life without Christ, who made the sacrifice to be punished for our sins on the cross. 
See, because in those scenarios that I just painted, the dying person was completely dependent on the person doing the saving so that he would live. And that make, makes it so that the life that was provided leaves no room for a person to boast in himself, right? The person being saved was completely dependent on the person doing the saving, so there's no room for that person to boast in himself, but only the person who did the saving. Where a genuine believer places his confidence is in Christ and the Spirit for worship in Christ because we we glory in Him and boast in Him knowing that He alone saves. Not us plus Him or Him plus us. He alone. So finally, he answers the question this way. True believers put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. Now, to help us with this, let's get a good understanding or good definition of flesh, okay? Uh, Commentator Alec Moitier says it this way. The flesh is what a person is apart from the grace of Christ. The flesh is what a person is apart from the grace of Christ. Well, we hear... Paul saying in Romans 7.18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, right? Genuine believers place their full confidence in Jesus for salvation and nothing and no one else. Remember the old hymn, In Christ the Solid Rock I Stand? It starts like this, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It doesn't matter how trustworthy something may seem, right? The sweetest frame. It doesn't matter. It will fail us if it is not Christ when we stand before God. We put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in anything other than Christ to be brought to God, to be forgiven, to be reconciled to him, to have our sins punished paid for. We trust in him alone. So how can we, how can Paul strengthen this argument? How can he strengthen his point? He's about to show us um, with something brilliant, his own personal testimony. He's, he's, he's going to use his past, his, his uh, old gain list, if you will, okay? His testimony. Let's, let's look again at verses four through six. Right? He says that true, genuine believers, they put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. His gain list, his old gain list. So in order to help us understand what he's getting at here, let's kind of run through each of these aspects of his list and talk about what they mean, okay? The significance of his credentials or gain list. Number one, he says, uh, circumcised on the eighth day. What what does that matter? This is very Jewish, by the way. 
This credential list, this gain list is very Jewish. So try to get into the mind of a first century Jew. Circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcision is, is the big religious rite that these Jews, these false teachers, were trusting in. So Paul says, I'm circumcised. But not just circumcised as a guy who entered into Judaism later on in life. Someone who, as an adult, came into Judaism. No, no, my my Judaism or my Jewish ritualism goes back to my beginnings. It goes back to when I was eight days old. I was uh, circumcised on the eighth day, and that's according to the Mosaic Law, right? If you you turn, I think it is Leviticus 12.3 says um, that male Jews were to be circumcised on the eighth day. So he was circumcised according to the law, the right way to do it, right? And so he says, circumcised on the eighth day. Paul was like Isaac, who was circumcised on the eighth day. He was like Jesus, who was also circumcised on the eighth day. He says, of the people of Israel. And Paul was, he was in the bloodline of the Jews, right? That went back all the way to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? He could trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. And that was important to Jews. Right? Bloodline was important to Jews. Uh, they, they didn't even like half-breeds, like the Samaritans, who were a mixture of both Jew and Gentile. That was, uh, they were, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. So bloodline was important, so he lists that on his gain list or his credentials list. So Jews thought this was important. Jews thought this was impressive. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Why does that matter? Well, some reasons why this might be important, why this might be a big deal are, are uh, number one, Saul, the first king of Israel, came from the tribe of Benjamin. That might be why it's significant. Also, also Moses blessed the tribe of Benjamin in Deuteronomy thirty-three twelve by calling them the beloved of the Lord. The beloved of the Lord. Also, um, of the sons of Jacob... Just in, in terms of backing up a minute, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel right, come from the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name would be uh, changed to Israel later, right? So Benjamin is one of those sons, and so we have a tribe of Benjamin after Benjamin, the son of Jacob. Well, Benjamin was born to Jacob, but he and Joseph were the only two born to Rachel, the wife that Jacob favored. Might be a reason. Also, Jerusalem, the holy city, it was placed in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. All reasons that this might be a big deal to Jews, okay? Also, he says a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's kind of like saying a Hebrew if there ever was one, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews. A Hebrew if there ever was one. It probably has reference to the fact that he comes from pure Hebrew stock, right? Both of his parents were Hebrews or Jews, but it also could refer to the fact that he continued faithfully in the religion of the Jews, right? Uh, he, he was not one who later on in life as a rebellious teenager left the faith. No, but he continued in faithfulness to Judaism as he got older. Could have a reference to that as well. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. In Judaism, when you became a Pharisee, uh, in a real sense, at least to the Jews, you had arrived. They were, as Paul says in Acts 26.5, the strictest sect in the Jewish religion in terms of keeping the law outwardly. So it was a big deal to be a Pharisee. It was was, uh, seen as holy. 
He also says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Think that, that, that sounds weird. Why, why would that be on a gain list? Why would that be on a list of credentials that he persecuted the church? Well, again, if you're thinking like a Jew, right, th- this does make sense because why would he persecute the church? Because he was so zealous for the Jewish faith. He, he saw um, Christianity as a serious threat. So, therefore, he needed to defend Judaism against Christianity. So he persecuted the church. That would have been seen as something good. Zeal would have been good to Jews in that sense. Also, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's not referring to God's view of him uh, in terms of the law. He's not talking about God, how, how God sees him as measuring up to the law. That's not what's going on here. But rather, he has in mind the view of other people, right? This is what John Calvin says. He says, this is not righteousness that is a, a perfect righteousness, but righteousness which would satisfy the common opinion of mankind. Righteousness which would satisfy the common opinion of mankind. When other people, other Jews would look at his life, they saw no reason to call his devotion into question, Right? He seemed to be keeping the law on every front from an outward perspective. Now, I want you to notice something about this list. There are some things on the list that Paul had no active role in, right? Did he have an active role in being circumcised on the eighth day? Did he have an active role in uh, being born as an Israelite into the tribe of Benjamin? Do you have an active role in that? No. But there are other aspects of this list that uh, he did have an active role in, right? He was um, persecuting the church. He's doing that actively. He's participating, right? And then there's also um, him keeping the law outwardly, an active role that he played there in keeping the law. My point here is, is this. In our gain list, and the, the way we think of how we relate to God, in our gain list, we often have items that fit into both of those categories, things that we couldn't really help, but we didn't have an active role in, and things we did have an active role in. So places like you know, uh, where your parents brought you to church, well, what, what, what country you were born into, what family you were born into, you, know, you didn't have an active role in that, but you did have active, an active role in other things that you did, that you participated in, and we tend to have both of those categories in our gain list. Right? But it doesn't matter. That's what Paul's about to, to, to get into. It doesn't matter because the gain list is not gain to God. It's not gain to him. Now, you, you may be thinking, this list, it, it's very Jewish. I don't really get it. Maybe if I was a Jew in the first century, I would really see that this is impressive, but it's hard for me to get into the context and think like a Jew. Okay, well, Ask yourself, what would be impressive? What would be an impressive gain list or list of credentials? Maybe some things like this. Born into a Christian family, at church when the doors were open, started going on mission trips at age five with his parents, been leading small groups since age 13, a fearless evangelist, tithes 50% of his income, seminary trained, a prayer warrior, if there ever was one, memorized 10 books of the Bible. I mean, you make your own list. What's impressive to you? It doesn't matter. 
Make the list. Make it as impressive as, as you want to make it. It doesn't matter to God. It cannot be used to incite him to accept you. Right? It cannot be used for you to get into God's favor, to get on his good side. That's not God's way. We can trust in a list that's a lot less impressive than this. But what Paul is saying is, does it matter if your list of credentials is impressive to other people or not? Because it's not impressive to God. And therefore, it shouldn't be seen as gain at all. In fact, it shouldn't, it's not that it shouldn't just be seen as gain like, well, okay, I'll get it down to zero. I'll get it down to a neutral level. No, Paul says, I count it. What I had as gain, I counted as loss. It should be seen as loss. Not merit, but demerit when standing before God. Whatever it is that you're trusting in to make you acceptable in the eyes of God, it is loss. No, no matter who else may look at it and say, wow, that's impressive. I mean, you, you can have some people, some well-respected people in this world look at your gain list, your credentials list, and think, wow, my goodness, that, that's fantastic. That, that's impressive. Uh, how did you, how'd you get there? How did you do that? That's, I'm convicted, sorely convicted. But it doesn't matter if they think that. They are not God. You've developed your gain list for all the people in your life, but God will have none of that. Here's what Paul says again in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, right? This is his old gain list. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In order to get Jesus Christ, Paul had to consider anything he was, anything he had, as loss, not profit, but loss before God. I want you to listen to another verse. You can flip over there if you want to. It's going to help us develop this a little bit more. It's Galatians 6.15. I want to show you something that I think is important in relationship to this point. Galatians 6.15. This is right after he just got through saying um, that he boasts he doesn't boast in anything except for the cross of Christ. Now he says in Galatians 6.15, far, I'm sorry, uh, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Right, again, in the context of Galatians, you see circumcision, this, this element of uh, Jewish religion. Um, the Judaizers, these people, these, these false teachers that are are teaching this false doctrine to the Galatian Christians. They're saying Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. Okay? And Paul is saying circumcision doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised. If you're, you're standing before God for salvation, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. That's not what matters. What matters is what God has done. Right? That, isn't that what a new creation is? It's not what a person has done or hasn't done. It's what God has done that, is, that matters. 
Has God made you a new creature in Christ? That's what matters. His work, not ours. Now, what matters when we stand before God is not what is or isn't on our gain list. What matters is God's work. Have you been made new in Christ through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us in Christ? When it comes to being made right with God, we are to put no confidence in the flesh, right? Paul said that. When it comes to being made right with God, we are to put no confidence in the flesh. So we must rid ourselves of thoughts of good and bad. This, whole, this, this idea of good and bad when it comes to what we are and what we've done. Because when we're thinking categories of good and bad, we're still thinking um, gain and loss. Like, okay, I, I need to do these things to gain and I, not these things because these are loss. When you're thinking, okay, that's good, that's bad. When you're standing before God, you're still thinking wrongly. That's not the way that God's way is. It's not his formula. It's not the gospel. Let me, let me unfold this a little bit more, okay? I want you to listen to a quote by uh, this commentator that I was reading this week, Alec Moyd here. He's talking about the flesh, okay? Hang with me. If it doesn't make sense, I think it's about to, okay? Alec Moyd here says this in terms of the flesh. Present day usage might confine flesh to a description of the rather grosser aspects of immorality. But we learn what is our true state before God and how incredibly marvelous is our Savior only when we dismiss this popular conception from our minds and accept that it is not only man at his worst, but also man at his best who is flesh and therefore not yet acceptable to God. Do you see what he's saying? We tend to think of fleshly people as those people who don't have the record that Paul had, right? Those are fleshly people. Those are evil people. Those are bad people. Those are the people that are the bad guys in movies and books. Those people who engage in the sins that society has deemed most harmful. We think, that guy's definitely going to hell. That's, what, that's the way we tend to think. Because of what uh, he is doing. Because the bad in his life, we think, that guy's definitely going to hell. And then we think in the other category, of the, the person, the, the religious person, the devout person, the person that's doing a lot, he's definitely going to heaven. We think in those categories. It's all over the place. But Paul, what Paul's getting at in this message is that flesh, that's man in his sinful state, unredeemed state, it refers to our best and our worst apart from God's grace. Even at our best in the flesh, we're still sinful. Even at our best in the flesh, we're still self-reliant, self-worshippers, right? Even at our best in the flesh, we're still enemies of God, rebels to his perfect will, even at our best. That's why we must come to God empty-handed. Empty-handed. For nothing. Because what, what is my best, it is still Still, it's still about me. It's still uh, me choosing me over you. And even if, I mean, you think about Paul's list. It doesn't mean that any of that wasn't good for society in a sense, right? Those things benefited people. 
to some degree. But when we're talking about God accepting us, our hearts are bent in a way that we only want to live for self, for us, when we're in our flesh. And so what we have is our best and our worst. It's flesh. It's not acceptable to God. Listen to this. This is, this is important. If you, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Only that which God provides is acceptable to God. When we're talking about salvation, only that which God provides is acceptable to Him. And hallelujah, He's provided it. Amen? Amen. He's provided it in Christ. He sent His Son. He was the offended party with our very lives, choosing us over him, rebels to his will, and yet he's the one who provided us the way of escape, the remedy. The offended party provided the only acceptable sacrifice for us to be brought to him, to know him, to be loved by him, to be saved by him, to live eternally with him in perfection. Only the perfect sacrifice that God provides for our sin is acceptable to God. As long as we're still hanging on to what we think is gain or what the world thinks is gain, we will not receive Christ as gain. You're holding on to the things that you think are gain or what the world thinks is gain. When you're before the Lord, if you still have that, if you're still depending on that, you will never have Christ as gain. And that is the greatest gain. Really, when you compare it to everything else, the only gain. Hands that are full of so-called spiritual credentials or religious works are not free to receive God's gift of salvation. Your hands are full of these things that you're trusting in to recommend you to God. Then your hands aren't empty to receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. We must come to him, hands empty, so that we can take the free gift of Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness given to those who trust fully in him and not ourselves. As the old hymn goes, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I claim. The story that I read of Corey Ten Boom's aunt yesterday. It was perfect for this sermon, I think. Corey Ten Boone's Aunt Jans was her name, and she had diabetes. And in those days, there was no treatment for diabetes, and it was a certain death sentence on a person's life. And Jans had always been an active Christian, giving public talks, writing tracts, organizing clubs. And when she learned of her diabetes, she threw herself into her most recent benevolent project raising funds to build a recreational center for the many soldiers who loitered on the streets of Harlem, Holland during the months leading up to World War I. She made numerous personal visits and wrote many letters to prospective donors. One gray Friday morning in January 1914, a doctor informed the Ten Booms that Jans likely had not more than three weeks to live. And the family members decided to go together to break this news to the beloved aunt. 
They ascended the stairs to her bedroom where they found her sitting at a table penning yet another appeal for funds. And she looked from one somber face to another. She realized what must be the reason for their gathering. My dear sister-in-law, began Corey's father, there is a joyous journey which each of God's children sooner or later sets out on. And Jan, some must go to their father empty-handed, but you will run to him with hands full. All your clubs, suggested Jan's sister Anna. Your writings, added Corey's mother. The funds you've raised, ventured Corey's sister Betsy. Your talks, Corey contributed. Their well-intentioned words, however, failed to have the desired effect. Aunt Jan's covered her face with her hands and began to weep. Empty empty. She at last choked out through tears. How can we bring anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? Then she lowered her hands and with tears still streaming down her face whispered, dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross. Did Jans do a lot in her life, I mean, she's very active in serving and loving people, obviously. But the point is, she wasn't trusting in it. She wasn't trusting in what she had done. And neither should we trust in what we have done. But only Christ and his righteousness to be accepted by God. We don't trust in what we have done. We trust in what God has done for us if we're to be accepted by him. Because by God's grace, Paul counted his gain list as loss. He could receive the free gift of God's grace that comes to sinners who believe that Jesus was punished in their place for their sins. Next week, we're going to explore more about the reality that uh, Paul counted gain as loss for the sake of Christ. Right? He counted his gain list as loss to get Jesus. We'll talk more about why that is of surpassing worth compared to anything next week. Now, let me close with these three uh, statements. I want to I direct three different statements to three categories of people before we end. For the person who knows this morning that he or she is an unbeliever, someone who hasn't, by faith, run to God through Jesus, I want you to think of this The only thing acceptable to God in regard to sinners is what God himself provides for them through his son as their substitute, him dying in their place as a perfect sacrifice. The only thing that is acceptable is Christ and Christ alone. So if you're an unbeliever and you know it, come to Jesus with empty hands, trusting only in him. Throw yourself upon him. Lean on him fully. Trust in him and nothing else. And God will be your God. God will be your father. You'll know him. You'll know his peace. You'll know his joy. You'll know him and all of his benefits. You'll get to fellowship with him as a child. As as a child fellowships with his father. For the person who thinks 
he or she is a believer, but maybe is thinking, perhaps I didn't come to God the way I should have. Let me say this. Did you come with empty hands when you first came? Or did you have even something small, or something you consider to be small in your hands when you came to Christ? Was it Jesus plus anything else? If it was Jesus plus anything else, then it ceases to be good news. It ceases to be the gospel. And I plead with you, come to God through Jesus Christ the right way with empty hands. Nothing else but Jesus as your hope. What about the believer this morning? You've come to Christ empty-handed. You've trusted in him for salvation. Well, you know, we can fall back into believing, even in our sanctification, in our our day-to-day lives, we can fall into thinking that we need ourselves in order to worship God and serve him. Right? Think about that. Do you you think that if you're going to come to God and worship him, that perhaps you needed to have spent a certain amount of time reading the Bible first? Or do you think that you had to spend every, every Sunday in church? If you missed one Sunday that month in church, then I don't know, I missed that, that last Sunday. I don't know if I could come to him and worship. Or maybe you think you, you needed to spend um, so much time memorizing scripture, so much time praying before you can actually worship God or serve him in, in, in a way that is pleasing to him. Now, don't get me wrong, if you've sinned, if you've neglected God in some way or you, you've sinned, um, you need to come to him and ask his forgiveness and receive his fatherly forgiveness. You, that's something that uh, we should be doing, but you don't trust in the act of you doing that, do you? When, you? when you go and ask God's forgiveness, are you trusting in your going? No. You're trusting in God to forgive you so that you can worship him the way he wants to be worshipped. So you, you're not trusting in your going, you're repenting. You're not trusting in your um, opening the Bible and reading or the prayers that you pray. No, you, you trust in God alone so that you can worship and serve God alone. So it's not that we don't do as Christians. We do, but we do because we believe, because we've come to him with empty hands. We go to God and we worship God depending on God so that we can worship him. We don't trust in the doing. We don't trust in ourselves. It's not like, oh, now I'm a Christian, so I've trusted Jesus. Now I begin to trust myself. No. Continue to live by faith in him alone. I hope these things have been encouraging today to you. I hope they have challenged you. Uh, If you're a believer, isn't it just good to hear the gospel again? Isn't it just good to be reminded of what it's unlike anything else, right? It's unlike anything else where God is offended, yet he provides everything necessary for us to come to him and be his people. So I hope that you rejoice. Rejoice together today with one another as you're talking about these things. Find a way to bring this up in a conversation with somebody here in this room before you leave and rejoice together. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that there's no room for us to boast. <laughs> there would be, if there was room for us to boast, Lord God, well, it's not even use talking about it because it's not true. 
trusting in ourselves, Lord, leads us to misery, but trusting in you leads to your joy. I pray we would do that. Show us, God, ways in which we aren't trusting in you completely, where we've thrown ourselves into the mix and we're trusting ourselves so that we will repent by your grace and walk by faith today so that you get the glory and we get you and all of your benefits and all of your character and your love for us. Praise you, God. You are the worthy one. Not us, but you. To your name be given glory.